Hi there, I'm Denise Hummel, and I am the CEO and founder of Lead Inclusively, and you are listening to the Leading Inclusively podcast. Today, I am lucky enough to be interviewing Liz Wiseman, who, among other things, is the author of Multipliers. I'm hoping we're going to talk a great deal about that. She is a researcher. She is an executive advisor. She teaches leadership to executives all over the world. She is the CEO of the Wiseman Group, a leadership research and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley. Uh, and uh, she, uh, my gosh, she has clients like Apple and AT&T and Disney and Facebook and Google, you name it, she is consulting with them. So we're very lucky to have uh, her on. She also continues to conduct significant research in the field of leadership and collective intelligence and writes for Harvard Business Review, Fortune, and a variety of other business and leadership journals. Liz, it is so great to have you here with us. How are you today? I, you know, I'm fine. I have a feeling you and I are going to have a pretty fun conversation about leadership. I am 100% clear on that because after reading the book, not once, but twice, I get to ask all these nitty gritty questions of the actual author about things that I've wondered about, as well as talk to you about the impact that it's had um, on my life. So I will tell you this, um, Liz, and, and I do want you to talk a little bit about multipliers for the people who have not yet read it. But, um, but for me, uh, it was just a tad bit of a rude awakening because as you know, I am the founder of a diversity and inclusion firm. And so I am supposed to be empowering other people, in particular women, people of color, et cetera. And when I read your book, I was kind of disappointed um, to see that I, in certain aspects, I'm not exactly a multiplier and I might actually be labeled as a diminisher in some respects. Well, Denise, if that was your experience with the book, you are not alone because a lot of people actually say that the book was painful and, you know, Multipliers was my, my first book. And when people would read it and say, man, that was kind of painful to read, I didn't exactly know how to take this. Did, did that mean like the book was really poorly written? And I mean, I've read some painful books to read or was it painful because it was resonant? And, and I think that was the experience a lot of people had. It's like it resonated with them. And, and of course, they're seeing that this diminisher way of leading is resonating with them. But so is this multiplier way of leading, meaning that they want to lead like a multiplier and they probably even have the heart of a multiplier leader, but they, and they see some of themselves in that, certainly in their intent, if not in their behavior and their mindsets, but they also see some of the diminisher in themselves and it hurts because it's not what they're trying to do. And for those who aren't familiar with these ideas, you know, these, these diminisher leaders are leaders who are smart and capable but they tend to drain intelligence and capability from people around them. And it, it, it could just be that they're, they're so busy kind of with their own to-do list, their own thoughts, their own ideas that they're not pulling their head up to look at the capability of people around them. Like they could be diminishing because they're just um, a little bit cloistered in their own thoughts versus the diminisher it was like clearly intentionally shutting people down. And then the multiplier leader is the exact opposite of this. They're leaders who are smart and capable and talented, but they use their intelligence in a way that, that encourages the intelligence of others. Um, they use, they, they recognize, they amplify the intelligence of others. So Denise, it doesn't surprise me that you might say, ooh, I saw a little bit of diminisher 
in myself as you read it. You know, I saw some diminisher in myself as I wrote it. Liz, I, I do want to tell you what my experience is, but or was, I should say, when I read it. But before I do, would you mind telling our audience just what a multiplier um, is? And, um, you know, obviously the, the opposite is a diminisher, but if you would at least, um, you know, give the people a, a chance to understand, the ones who have not yet read the book, what is a multiplier versus a diminisher? Mm. A multiplier is a leader who uses their intelligence and capability in a way that increases the intelligence and capability of their team. They're leaders who deeply utilize other people's insights and ideas and know-how and smarts. And, you know, they're leaders who see intelligence in other people, but they also see intelligence in in, in multi-technicolor. They, they see that intelligence comes in a lot of different forms that just because someone isn't smart the way they're smart doesn't mean them that they're, doesn't make them um, not smart. They, they see a diversity of intelligence and they use it. So I guess in short, they're leaders who see the intelligence of people who work for them and they put it to work at its fullest. And people report that these diminishers get virtually all of their capability. Um, 95% was what came out of my research. And people describe working for these multipliers as um, the two words that came up the most in my research was, they describe working for them as a little bit exhausting because you know they use people so deeply, so fully. So a little bit exhausting, but totally exhilarating. And Denise, right. you know exactly what this feels yes, like when you're yes. sort of exhausted, but exhilarated, like a little bit tired, but totally energized. Yeah, I will say, so now I'm going to come clean and tell you, um, you know, why this meant a lot to me and why I really started focusing on changing this. Because because basically, you know, what I got out of the book, among other things, was that a really good leader... Um, is is going to empower the 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 talents the zone of genius of the the people uh, on on their team and my big problem is that I love you know I have a a lot of experience and a lot of I would say wisdom and I'm trying very hard to convey that to other people. But in doing that, you know, I I, I kind of act like I'm the smartest person in the room in in that attitude of being the smartest person in the room, it really shuts people down. And what I learned from your book was that it's my job to um, empower them to come to their own solutions and perhaps to coach them along the way, but not to be this command and control person, uh, even, you know, even though it seems sometimes more efficient to be that way. Now, I will say that what I've noticed is that those behaviors for me are accelerated when I'm feeling any sort of um, anxiety or urgency. Let's say we didn't hit our numbers for a quarter, or we um, there's a, a particular client um, that is um, you know important to us that is nervous or upset about something. Then I be I become sort of more dogmatic. But either way, I mean, there's no excuse, right? Well, you know, it, it follows a pattern that we've seen. So when I first started doing this research, my, my question was really around who are these diminishing leaders and who are these multiplier leaders? And honestly, when the book, book first came out, 
I felt like in some ways I had these strange superpowers that I could walk down the hallways of an office and be like, ooh, multiplier, multiplier, diminisher. Like I was playing some duck, duck, goose game in corporate hallways. I could pick out these multiplier leaders because I really understood the mindsets and the behaviors. And my first big um, slap in the face in the research was realizing that most of the diminishing that's happening in the workplace is coming from the accidental diminisher. So not that. So give me, give me an example. Give me an example. Yeah. Yeah. So the accidental diminisher is the leader who's having a diminishing effect while holding the best intent. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to be a good leader. So you're not these kind of like bullies, bossing people around. The accidental diminisher is, let me start with my accidental diminisher tendencies. The things that I do that I think are good that are going to help me be a better leader, help people be empowered, take ownership, da, 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 but actually have a diminishing impact. So I'll start with a couple of mine. Um, my first is I'm a massive idea guy, a fountain of ideas, meaning I've got this kind of creative mind that won't stop. I love mm -hmm. working mm -hmm. in an innovative team. I love other people. I want to empower people to be creative. So what I usually do is I kind of toss out a few ideas to get things started. Like, hey, what about this? Or have you thought about this? Or, you know, when I sense problems, I'll usually like describe a problem and then say, and you know, maybe you should think about this or this might be an answer to it. Well, when leaders are fast with ideas and they're idea rich, you know, other people end up idea lazy. Like, well, mm -hmm. okay. Like Liz just asked, described a problem, offered a possible solution. I see it as a starting point. Well, other people think, well, I'll like, we'll just do that. Like and you're, and you're the boss done. too, right? So, so you've already, by giving your idea, you've already endorsed it and you've already said this is, in a sense, this is the direction you want to go in. Exactly. And, you know, it's funny, Denise, I think you, my guess is you've seen this as well. My experience is that most leaders don't fall short because they're power mongers, you know, who are in love with their own power. Most leaders underestimate their power. They don't realize that people like are listening to them that, you know, one of my just starter ideas becomes doctrine for somebody else. Like, okay, Liz said we should do this. Um, so this is an example of one of several ways that we can diminish, um, you know, actually becoming this wet blanket on creativity while we think we're kind of fanning the flames of that. Um, so I'm an, I'm an idea guy. Uh, another thing, I'm going to give you some of my I used to be such a rapid responder and, uh, you know, just on it, quick to address things. Um, you know, a rapid responder is the person who wants to build an agile team, keep things moving. They're quick to reply to emails. They clear out their inbox every day or for some people like every hour. And, and they think, of course, that they're keeping their team moving fast, but you know, what happens when you're working with a rapid responder, whether they're your boss or your colleague, let's say both of you receive the, the request, let's say it comes in an email and it's something that you own, you are responsible for, you're leading it, you want to do it, but your boss is copied on it. And your boss is a massive rapid responder. Well, what do you tell yourself? Like, you know, you usually say, well, 
he's going to have this answered before I can even start to type my reply or check data or have a moment to think about it. So what we do, oh my God, is this let, is so me. <laughs> is it? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to pick one that was like, <laughs> let me stuff some salt into that wound. But, but it's like, they're, they're so quick and they think they're keeping other people moving, but people learn to just hold back. Like, okay, Denise yep. is probably on it. I'll just let her do it. And yep. when we, when we, when we respond quickly, other people end up reacting very slowly. And so we're creating a slow organization that's watching the boss. Yeah. I've, I've curbed this one. I, this is one I'm really proud of that. I have all but nipped this in, in the bud. I need to know. I, I absolutely need to know that because let me tell you something. Um, no leader can afford this, let alone the head of a diversity and inclusion firm, right? Because what you're describing is actually the opposite of inclusive behavior. And my, my own personal ethos brand professionalism requires that I, that I get, get rid of this quality. How do I do it? Mm, well, I'll give you my quick little working round. Um, and I'm, so my, my little workaround is this, which is a hands-off period. My personal hands-off period is 24 hours. So what that means is if I receive an email note or a group text or some sort of request and there's other people on that chain and the other people can and should take responsibility, I wait 24 hours before reacting to it. And that's my Wow, great that period. is amazing. <laughs> Is it amazing that I can wait 24 hours? Yes, yes. I, I mean, I, I mean, that would take a lot of discipline on my part because I associate, you know, productivity with, you know, um, you know, responding to everything in my inbox. I would have to interrupt the impulse from, you know, efficiency to, you know, a higher level and purpose, which is, which is actually what leadership is, right? We don't get to just manage our inbox. We need, we need to be strategic um, in our approach, which is what you're saying. Mm. Yeah. You know, and, and efficiency is what tends to pull us into this one. And I have to tell you, I am an efficiency fiend. Like Me I'm, too. I love efficiency, but I'll take big efficiency, like all caps efficiency over lower case efficiency. And what I mean by that is it's very inefficient for me to be doing work that other people on my team could be doing. Like that's the ultimate inefficiency. That's and a good so point. Efficiency good point. is, is putting other people in charge and keeping other people in charge and for them to stay in charge. I can't take it back from them. And when I respond and provide a client or somebody an answer on something that's their responsibility, I've just taken that away from them. And so not only do they not take ownership that time? They learn not to take ownership at all. And so you get a very slow system. The leader is the bottleneck. Like I'm in love with the idea that everybody is reacting quickly to the things that are in their area of responsibility. And for people to do that, it means I have to be hands off. Right. I have to give them a chance to do it. So for me, 24 hours is actually a fairly short period, but you know, like the reason I picked 24 hours is one, it's kind of easy to track, but that, that allows me to give people a chance to go to the doctor's appointment, like be at their kids, you know, ballet recital. And, and, you know, they might be out in the afternoon, they might be working again in the evening, or just to have had a bad day where they're backlogged and pale to pick it up in the morning. Right. So I think it's a pretty reasonable 
period of time. And it, and it demonstrates trust as well. So it demonstrates that if life gets in the way, that that doesn't mean that they're not dedicated and that, that they're not going to attend to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so I use the 24-hour um, hands-off period. I'm trying to remember. So Adam Grant is uh, a bit of a, a, a rapid responder as well. And he had, he had told me his little workaround. It'll come to me. But it, it's kind of similar. But I remember his had some really nice nuances that I might share with some people. So those are a couple ways. Um, I'll tell you another one of mine. It's sort of a strange thing to think about having negative leadership effects and that is optimism. So I am an optimist. I am like, I think probably every performance review I've ever had in my life has said like Liz has a can-do attitude. So I just look at things, hard things and say, oh, you know what? We can do this. We got this. Like, you know, I should have like had, we got this tattooed on my wrist at birth. (laughs) You know, and if you're you're an optimist, you know, you might be one of those people who wear those, um, those rubber band bracelets that like said, we can do hard things. If you, yep, <laughs> if you're I'm that wearing one of those, too. like yep. cut that thing off. Um, yeah. So what, <laughs> and I, uh, why I is that a bad the, thing? Right. Like I've read all the research on optimism. It, it has all sorts of physiological benefits. It tends to be highly present in senior leadership and it has so many positive qualities yet. Yet what happens is when leaders are so focused on what can go, what's going to go right, you know, they often overlook what's going to go wrong. And, you know, until maybe they lose some of their credibility, like, oh my gosh, Liz has lost her tether to reality, but it goes beyond this. When the leader fixates on the upside, what? It, it, it makes the, their team fixate on the downside. Like, you know, I've learned. And, and the other thing it does is when the leader really sees possibilities, um, you know, becoming reality, it kind of eliminates the possibility of failure. And when leaders are so busy seeing victory, they often overlook not just the loss potential, but struggle, like how mm-hmm. hard it is. I've had employees like basically kind of like bash me against the wall and say like, Liz, like you got to pay attention. And it's come in so many different forms is like, you need to pay attention to what's happening because we are struggling here. It's not all great in the neighborhood. Uh, interesting. So, so, so in a sense, it comes across as denial and also just not being supportive of what people are actually experiencing in terms of the adversity. Yeah, totally insensitive and unsympathetic because we're so positive. And it's strange. It comes from a deep belief in other people. And I really... I feel that, like, I really believe in the people who, who work with me. And strangely, by only focusing on how capable they are and how good this is going to be, I become deeply unsympathetic to their realities. Now, and how did you figure that out? Is this, are we talking personal observation and interaction with your team, or is there a broader reason why, you know, you came to these conclusion, rel- conclusions re- relative to the accidental diminishers? Well, you know, some of it was 
feedback I got, like on the optimism, I had a colleague say, Liz, I need you to stop saying that. And I'm like saying what? He goes, oh, that thing you say all the time. I'm like, what is this thing I say all the time? He goes, oh, how hard can it be? We can do this. This can't be hard. Oh, this can't be that hard. I'm like, oh, I do say that all the time. That's my deep belief that we're smart. We're capable. We can figure it out, which incidentally is the fundamental mindset of a multiplier. Right. This belief that people are smart and they can figure it out. And so I'm giving a little motivational speech on this is my way of saying, I think we are like smart and capable together. And he's like, yeah, I hear you. That's what I need you to stop saying. Why? He goes, Liz, because what we're doing is hard. It's really hard. And as my boss, I need you to acknowledge it. I'm yeah. like, wow. And you know, it's yeah, funny. It's powerful. Yeah. And, and so I was very clear what he was telling me. And you know, the, the, here's the irony is in that very moment, he's saying this, I'm like, oh, he wants me to do something differently. This is feedback. Okay. He wants me to stop saying this. I can do that because that can't be that hard. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. But that's really what I'm thinking is I can make that change. It turns out it has been hard, but here's what I've done differently is I've learned nobody wants a pessimistic boss. So I haven't like swung the other direction. What I've done is I've learned to, and here's the workaround, signal the struggle. Meaning Mm -hmm. I, I say things like, hey, you know what? This project is going to be kind of brutal. Like, whoa, we're doing something new here. Um, we're, we're probably going to suck at this at first. Like, you know what? This might mm-hmm. not work. We might not win at this. We might fail. And it's funny how liberating this is. And I'm wow. give you just one example. So I'm working on a new book and we've been in this massive research process. And I recruited some people on my team, some who are part of my research team, but then a few others to to join in doing, we were doing 170 interviews and there's a new member of the team and she's never done anything. um, She hasn't done anything like these interviews. She's worked for me for like eight years, but this interview thing is new. And she was very, very nervous, really concerned she was going to screw this up. She knows that I'm a really diligent researcher and and she's nervous. And, and I, was, I told her, I said, hey, you know what? Don't worry about this. I said, your first one or two interviews can be toss away. So we can just toss that data. In fact, you can completely screw up the first wow. one or two. I said, you can't really screw up all of them. Like we'll, we'll be in a world of hurt if we screw up all of our interviews. But the first one or two, fine, screw them up. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah, don't worry about it. I left on vacation. This was this last summer. I'm gone for two weeks. I come back. The team is expecting her to do about five or six interviews. That was sort of her allotment. I come back and she has done 25 interviews. She ended the process having done about 35 of these interviews. And when I came back from vacation and I asked like, what happened here? She was so nervous. And she said, you know what? I just really, I, I felt comfortable because she told me I could screw a couple up. And, and it was such a victory for both of us because it was, you know, my optimist would have said, Oh, don't worry. You're going to be great at this. Like you're great at everything. You'll be fine. Just go Mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. But I learned I needed to acknowledge the struggle. And I also needed to carve out some space for her to fail. 
Right. You know, you know what I was going to say, Liz, is that everything that you've said so far is so congruent with the principles of, of innovation because, you know, you, you are basically giving, uh, you know, your team permission to fail and, and perhaps even to fail f- fast so that they can move on to other solutions or other initiatives, you know, which is unbelievably congruent with accelerated innovation. Well, and I think that is at the very core of this, this multiplier leadership is creating space for people to do great work. And, you know, if I could boil multipliers down, it's taken me a few years, Denise, to be able to do this, could kind of boil the whole concept and the whole book down to, I guess, two and a half words. And, and that is safety and stretch. Mm-hmm. The and is that half word. <laughs> it's kind of cheating. I can't really call it three words. It's really two, two words. But what, as I've really studied this, like what do leaders do that cause their teams to be brilliant and to have great ideas and to take ownership and accountability and like knock it out of the park and all those kinds of things is they're creating two simultaneous conditions. One is safety, meaning they're creating trust. They're yep. creating psychological safety. They're giving people space to think, to disagree, to speak the truth, to push back, to, um, to, to experiment, to make mistakes and to like live to tell. So they're creating like a great place for people to work where people feel comfortable, known, seen, trusted, like so many of the things that come with inclusivity. So these these multiplier leaders create this safety, which really is this kind of inclusive environment, but they don't leave it at just that. They don't just create a great place to work where people feel seen and heard and, and appreciated for their unique perspectives. They then use that to not just create a great place to work, but to do great work. And they they challenge, they stretch, they hold people accountable, they have high expectations, they're, they're demanding. And they're not intimidating leaders, they're demanding leaders in that I look around the room and I see a bunch of smart, capable people who may see things differently than me. And so I actually need it. I need you to give me all of your ideas. I need you to push back on me. Like they're stingy in that they see capability and they want to put it to work. So it's when like magic happens when a leader can put together safety and stretch and they can do that sort of on the large arc of their leadership, like over time, over weeks, but also when they can do it in any given meeting, like, Hey, let me open up this meeting and set some ground rules and make introductions and make sure like everyone's role is clear. That's all like safety. Mm -hmm. But then let me ask some hard questions. Let me go like, let's prosecute these issues that stretch. So when we can do that in any given meeting or interaction or project, I think it creates an environment where people are at their best. So Liz, you know me, I'm always going to hone in on the connection with inclusion. So given what you just said about safety and stretch, what, what is the actual connection with inclusion or inclusivity? Well, I, I suppose I should start by saying, I think a lot of people do see this connection and 
we it's probably one of the the most frequent use cases for multiplier leaderships is organizations that want to figure out how to lead really inclusively and i i think it comes down to this like it starts with this idea that intelligence exists in multiple forms it's as leaders move away from the question of, gee, is this person smart? And I have to admit, I've asked that question about people who I've worked with over the years. And my guess, most people listening, unless you're a saint, um, has, have probably asked some form of that question like, oh my gosh, am I working with a dingling? Or I don't know, this person doesn't seem to like have a lot to offer. Like instead of asking, is this person smart? We ask, in what way is this person smart? Mm -hmm. and, and how do I learn to see their, I think you, you called it their zone of genius. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I you know, sometimes use the term native genius to help me focus in on like someone's true genius is not what they went to school to learn to do. It's not what they've like learned to do in life to get by like me with technology. I'm pretty facile with technology, but I've, I've learned to do it because I live in the heart of Silicon Valley. I work for, you know, software companies. I've taught programming, so I've learned to do it. It's not where my native genius lies. That's the kind of stuff like people do easily and freely and they can't help but do like they're going to do it whether it's their job or not to do right, i think system. we're 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 probably using the same so i use the term zone of genius that's kind of my little phrase um as the intersection between what people are good at and what they like right mm -hmm. so i love playing the piano i don't happen to be good at it so it's not my zone of genius um, but there are many other areas that I love and I'm good at. And so I try to work as much within that zone as possible and to encourage my team members to do the same. Yeah. And that's it. And I think when leaders see that and use that, I mean, like, think about it. If you get to go to work where your unique genius is understood by your boss, maybe talked up by your boss understood by your colleagues because either the boss has talked that up or you feel comfortable sharing that yourself or because you guys have done what I call like the team, you know, genius challenges. You've all talked about it. We'll be like, okay, hey, let's all talk about Denise. What do you see Denise is brilliant at? Denise, what's your zone of genius? We're like, in fact, Denise, why don't you tell us? Like, what's one of those things that are in your zone of genius? For me, mm -hmm. um, I would say, um, you know, like you, I'm I'm an innovator, so I have a lot of uh, innovative thoughts, and I am also able to act on them and so to fully execute them. You know how there are some people that have great ideas but they can't execute, and there's some people that really don't have that many ideas but they're great at execution. Mm. So that that intersection is actually something that I am love and am passionate about, but and also um, am. I'm good at. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's important to me. So if we worked on a team, I might say, you know what, Denise has this, this genius for the, the ideas to implementation process. Like she's not only good at these ideas, but like how to get good ideas implemented. We've got someone on the team who's brilliant at this. Like, how can we use this across the team? Mm -hmm. Like, how can we use this in service to our hardest problems? Yep. That's so like, great. Not like, oh, let's give Denise a little sideline project to humor her 
It's no, let's really use it. And when, so when someone feels like their colleagues, their, their leaders are, know their, their genius, they use it, they see it, they stretch it, they challenge it, and then they, re, they recognize it, that's a pretty good place to work. Like that's a good gig. Right. And, and, and that creates this environment where I, I think it's a tip of the iceberg when it comes to leading inclusively, like when we can be inclusive and use intellectual diversity, meaning the diversity of gifts that people bring to the workplace. Right. Then I think it opens up the opportunity for people to feel like they can bring their whole selves to work, which is like, oh, like, and by the way, I'm going through a really rough patch in my life. I just want you guys to know it. So if I look like I'm like staring out the window, I'm probably am worried about this. And, and people can be more whole. And then they're maybe even more comfortable talking about differences. Like they might be more comfortable saying something like, you know, hey, I'm sorry if I'm kind of being a know-it-all. I've spent my career typically the only woman at the table amongst a bunch of people. And I probably learned that I had to kind of demonstrate a lot of knowledge and competence. So like, sorry about that. But you know what, how many women do you imagine are listening to this podcast right now that fall into that exact category that we've been sort of conditioned in that way? And how amazing would it be to have the confidence to be transparent about that and not, and to say it in a way that doesn't give, give away our power. Mm. Yeah. And, and also isn't an excuse, which is, well, I have right. to be this way because I'm a, um, I'm a woman or, right. Hey, I've been, you know, a, an ethnic minority in the work, but, but like, I think when we really appreciate like what people bring and their intellectual gifts, I do think it opens up that conversation. And I do think there's, um, there's a challenge for, for women as, as leaders, because historically, and I'm going to like speak of my own generation. So I am, I am 55. I got thrown into my first management job when I was probably 25 years old. So I've been doing this for about 30 years. Now that was back in, what is it? The late eighties, the era of like power suits and those silk bow ties. And, you know, (laughs) you know, and in that, in that, um, generation in that age, I think women who were either thrust into these leadership roles or, or found themselves in it, I think like the image I get is standing in your closet and having to choose. There's two suits in your closet and neither of them fit very well, but these are your choices. And, and there was, I think kind of two fundamental leadership styles available to women in this era. One was the power suit it's mm-hmm. like out men the men tougher than the men meaner than the men harsher on accountability like the bossiest boss and i a lot of women felt like they had to go down that path the other because the other ill-fitting suit was the oh i don't know it's probably the mama bear like you know what i'm gonna love up people people i'm just going to care about people i'm going to take yep. care of my team and yep. they're using that sort of what we traditionally think of this feminine quality of nurturing and care but like think about they're both 
diminishing. Like the the um, out men, the men power suit thing, that's diminishing um, through it's like know-it-all bossiness. But the other one is just as diminishing because we end up rescuing people when they're struggling. Yep. We're overprotective yep. of people. We don't let people like learn to fight for themselves and, and toughen up. And and this is something I, you know, I would love to see women talk more about is like some of those choices they had to make and how we are so ripe for a way of working where people can be far more authentic. Um, I was pretty fortunate, Denise, and I mean, I think about this all the time. I wish people had the experience I had. I, I, I went to work in this like tough, you know, kind of just a really, really tough performance environment at Oracle, but I worked and they were for men who I felt a hundred percent comfortable just being me around. And it was this incredible gift. Like it was the gift of my career was just to be able to feel like I could just be myself. That I didn't have to take on some of the, some wacky persona. And I just feel like, um, you know, I also feel grateful for the millennials who I think have created an environment where people don't have to do that. Let me ask you, um, Elizabeth, uh, so, so we're getting sort of towards the end of our time here, and there are two critical questions that I want to ask you. Um, one, one, one relates to just the whole um, etiology of how you got started with this, uh, and, and, and the other relates to your, your, your new book coming up. But um, so with respect to... How, I don't know how to ask this exactly right, but how did you come up with this? I mean, what, what is all the, where does all this wisdom come from? Oh, I don't know. It's just, it's just the thing I do. <laughs> but I mean, I is, really it, know. is it, was it, was it sort of a hypothesis that you generated that then you studied and realized that you were right? Well, I'll tell you the, re I can describe the research process. I am probably by nature, I am observant by nature. Like I have a gift that I brought into this is that while I work, I watch and I'm always just, I'm fascinated by people. I guess I'm a people watcher, but I just, particularly people in the workplace, Dan Pink is very much the same way he's, he's described this, but I get thrown into me. So I'll go through the story really fast. I get thrown into management. I have no clue what I'm doing. So I'm watching. I get hired in this company that's obsessed with hiring really smart people. So I'm surrounded by all these genius type people. And I'm like, wow, I feel kind of lucky to work here. There's a lot of really smart people and I'm watching them and put those two things together, thrown into management really early, working around a lot of really smart people. I'm thinking, wow, there's a lot of really smart people here who dumb down every single person around them. And like, why does that smart person create smarts around them? And that other smart person, like render everyone sort of idiot status around them. Like, why does no one want to speak up around them? Like, why do they suck all the life out of the room? So I'm just watching that. And I end up leaving Oracle after 17 years and I'm coaching a, um, some executives in Silicon Valley and, you know, was very lucky to be able to coach a couple of executives who were very, very bright, like Mensa kind of 
levels of intelligence. And I saw the same dynamic that they were smart, but the, their team holds back either because they're, they're like actively suppressing them or that people just think, wow, my boss is really bright. I'll just let him or her find all the answers. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that we respect and revere really smart people. And I was simply trying to find answers. And actually, I was just trying to help be a good executive coach when I realized I need some data. I need some research on this. Surely someone has studied this. And I go out, do a literature review. There's nothing on this. And I'm like, how could there be nothing on this? I see this happening every single day. How could there be nothing? I'm like, well, I suppose I'm going to have to do the research. And, you know, I'd come out of a a very data and evidence oriented kind of environment and had worked with a lot of professors. So it didn't seem that hard. My, you know, do you hear my optimist kicking it? This can't be yes, that of hard. Course. Yep. And, um, you know, I bought a lot of my research after um, Jim Collins, who, you know, he, I love the way he does his research and his analysis. And I kind of just set up a study and did it and was going to write an article about it and was trying to get that article published in Harvard, um, business review. And they're like, oh, no, no, it's not an article. It's a book. Write a book. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll do that. So, um, and then- Wow, what a path. Oh, but it's, it's yeah. a path of necessity. It wasn't a path of ambition. It's a path of- I get well, it. There, someone needs to figure this out. And, you know, I was poor- I was probably born, you know, a little bit bossy and always ready to say, oh, I'll do that. I could do that. That can't be hard. And so I just- thought, well, someone's got to do it. And that's really what drives a lot of my research is I observe interesting dynamics. I don't have the answers, but no one else has seemed to figure it out. So I, I raised my hand and go, oh, I'll figure that out. That's just brilliant. Um, I just, I have to say, I, 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 I love people with that attitude. I, I get what you're saying and I, I agree and respect it, but, um, but on the whole, the sort of the whole heart and ethos behind that, um, I think is, is what makes people great. And so I'm sort of, um, secretly glad that you have that quality, but let mm-hmm. me say, let me segue into, because I, I'm, we're coming to, to a close here and I don't want to leave our, um, audience without asking you about your new book. Oh, well, it's not much of a book yet. Um, <laughs> and I can tell you what I'm trying to figure out, but okay, great. no, I, I've just, I've, you know, we've gotten through the research and the, I've got the analysis done, I've got the framework built and I'm really just starting the writing. So this is not coming out anytime soon. And it's really even irresponsible for me to talk about things I haven't fully formed yet, but what I've been trying to understand, well, I guess let's start with multipliers. You know, multipliers explains what leaders do that enable people to contribute at their fullest and to create kind of what I call a, a contribution environment, a high contribution environment, uh, which is an inclusive environment, as you know. But, uh, you know, there's more to leadership. Um, there's more going on here than just leadership. It's also how the contributor shows up. And so what I've been looking at is the contributor side of the equation. And like with this, this idea that everybody has talent and everyone has intelligence and know-how that they bring to their work, but some people play it better than others. Right. Like some people are sitting back going, gee, like, you know, put me in coach or they're like waiting to be discovered. Like, I don't know, like, 
I'll just drive to Hollywood and like wait for someone to discover me and give me this big opportunity versus somebody who's making a path, you know, someone who's actively working. I've been looking at the kind of people who are easy to utilize and what is it that they do about how they, they show up at work and how they interact with their colleagues and their bosses that allow them to be deeply used and deeply useful. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's what I've been studying and it's tons of fun. It sounds like it's going to be exciting. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I have enjoyed this so, so much. And really, I want to thank our entire audience for joining us. Uh, as you know, that was leadership and, and research development guru, Liz Wiseman. And I'm your host, Denise Hummel. And this was the Leading Inclusively podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review and be sure to subscribe to the channel to, uh, to enjoy further episodes. By the way, the podcast series can be found on both iTunes and Google Play, as well as our website, leadinclusively.com. And I want to thank all of you and see you next time and especially Liz Wiseman for joining us today. Mm, Denise, thank you for the work that you do to help people lead inclusively. 